Hi, I'm Lawrence Diamond. And I'm Bob Matthews. And this is The Process of Production. Mate, how's your week been? Yeah, really, really nice. Been getting some footage from some artists I worked with last year. They're filming videos for songs that um, I've worked on. We've worked on. Yes, some of, of it's course. Some of stuff that we've worked on together, which is really exciting. Yeah. Got, I've got an in-person session, a couple of in-person sessions this week coming up. Yeah, we're doing Kenya Grace uh, this week, aren't we? Yeah, um, she's an amazing uh, singer-songwriter from the South Coast, now living in London. So we've got an in-person session with her. Exciting. Um, which seems unreal. I, I was actually thinking about it. We've worked on and off with her for a year, and the first session we ever did was in person, but the majority of work has been done over Zoom. And it's yeah. crazy to think you could be working with someone from a year, for a year and it being all in these circumstances. Yeah, I feel like the pandemic's been so tough for a lot of artists just putting the brakes on a lot of things. Yeah, I th- it, it's interesting if, if this had been that year that you have as an artist where you're really reaching the peak of your development and starting to get out in the world. Mm. It's really put you back emotionally and release-wise. Just the whole package has just had to go on pause, whereas for yeah. people like myself and yourself where maybe our first releases and our first experiences are behind us. It's just yeah. a thing we've had to negotiate. But if you're if you're on the come up, as it were, it's a real spanner in the works. Yeah, hopefully, I mean, people I'm sure have managed to use it positively and progress in other ways and, and are ready now for the opportunities that are going to come. Talking about on the come up, bit of a personal episode for me this week. Yes. We are interviewing Liam Howe, who... His his banner headlines would be such amazing things as uh, the f- Sneaker Pimps, which was his act. And if you put on any of their records from the late 90s, early noughties, you will know them and they sound yeah. timeless. Check out Six Underground if you don't Six know what we're talking about. That's my favorite tune. Big banger. Yeah. Um, but then was was the producer behind the early Marina and the Diamonds stuff, which is yeah. uh, still, still stands up unbelievably. The first Twigs EP, which... Is seven years old now, but it literally feels like it was released yesterday. If people really? still yeah. running to catch up with that. Yeah, that still sounds futuristic. Um, yeah. Work with Lana Del Rey. Yeah, Ellie Goulding. Uh, Ellie Goulding. Uh, flipping heck. Big, yeah. big names. He also produced an album, my first ever album. That's right. He was probably the first, inverted commas, producer I ever worked with 12 years ago, which is crazy to think. So tell us about tell us about that album, what, the band, and, and how yeah, you ended up working um, with Liam. I'm always conscious of this because I do listen to some podcasts, and when people talk about their things, I always just think jog on. Well, but it is I, relevant to our guest. Hopefully, this week, it's relevant and it won't bore and we'll you all keep to it death. Brief, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was in a band called Official Secrets Act that I'd formed with some friends that I met at university, and we had been signed to a record label that's now called One Little Independent, um, legendary South London label, who had released Sneaker Pimps and Skunk and Nancy and, and loads of amazing artists. Um, we played this gig at the Camden Crawl, which was a festival. We had a really good show. The label boss was there, signed us. You know, mm. obviously I was over the moon. I had a record deal with this amazing record label. Yeah, just a, another sort of personal podcast note. I, I met you like the day after you signed that record deal. Yes. Even the you, day of. Maybe even uh, that I think I came I from signing a deal to watch you play a gig. Oh, yeah, at a, at a house party. And, yeah. Um, and yeah. I was buzzing it was very exciting and we were like a indie alternative band but we were obsessed with synthesizers and we really wanted to incorporate that into our sound yeah and the label boss of one little independent Derek Burkett who's also a legend recommended Liam and obviously 
to work with, you know, working with Liam, was like, we were working with someone who'd had a hit record, you know, 600 Grand was a massive song for, for the time. And, and he, he was true to his word. He introduced us to synthesis and bands like the Blue Nile. But yeah. what's interesting, because it's what we've really learned in this podcast, is I don't really remember any of that, though that was my motivation at the time. Mm. What I remember was learning about being in a studio and making music and the reasons of making music and the reasons of making a record from Liam, much yeah. more than that technical um, side. What was he like as as a as a as a producer? He was like the coolest older brother I never had. He was just the coolest guy I'd ever met, and he knew more about music than anyone I'd ever met, apart mm. from maybe my my father. Mm. And such an amazing six weeks. I don't remember much about the record. Yeah, um, I listened to it before this podcast. Um, there's some work to be proud of on there. Everything Definitely. was faster back then. That was the mm. one thing that I noticed. We played quite fast. You in tempo, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, mm. But yeah, well, Liam was amazing. That's from your like electric live shows, isn't it? Yes, you, we were transferring the electric live the show to tape. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say it was cathartic speaking to Liam. I didn't have anything to work through, but it was certainly fascinating to revisit um, those times. And also, which we do more in the podcast hear more from like my cool older brother and and yeah with a bit more context now so without further ado shall we get to the interview yeah here's the interview liam howe's band the sneaker pips broke through in the 1990s with their self-produced debut album becoming x scoring a hit on both sides of the atlantic with their track six underground and the first new music from the sneaker pimps in nearly 20 years is out next month on the 9th of july it's the first single from forthcoming album squaring the circle Having always aspired to be a producer, Liam has helped launch the careers of multiple stars, including Marina and the Diamonds, FKA Twigs, Ellie Goulding, and Lana Del Rey. Here's Liam Howe's process of production. One thing we found interesting kind of reading up about your career is you wanted to be a producer kind of from day one. It sounds like almost like when other kids were dreaming of being Brian May, you were dreaming of being Brian Eno. Yeah, I mean, as, as far back as I can remember, being a producer was the desired uh, position. When I was, I don't know, 12, 13, I, I thought that making music was the coolest thing in the world. I, whereas kind of being a pop star was, was um, less desirable in, in a way. So I, I thought, you know, what's the quickest way that I can be a producer? And I looked into it and the, the kind of traditional way is to move up the, the, the system from tape op to mix engineer, yeah, blah, blah, yeah, blah. Sure. And, it, and it takes, you know, you're 30 before that happens. So the, the quickest route to be a producer is to be in a successful band first and then kind of, you know, move sideways sure. into production. And and you kind of get a different style of producer. I mean, you mentioned Brian Eno, but people like that came from bands first and then segued into, you know, to, into production. And I kind of rather like uh, what I call pop star, pop star producers. I, I kind of like the where they've come from and, and what they do, as opposed to a very traditional idea of a producer coming coming through the system. Sure. What what do you think that brings to the process as as, a, as opposed to someone who started a tape op? Well, I mean, firstly, the quite obvious point that you've been in a band, yeah. and and you've travelled around the world, and you've you know had the ups and downs of of band life, and 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 that whole you know the the, the whole gambit that comes with it. And if you've been stuck in a in a in a bunker studio for twenty years, you you don't get these things. You know, you probably ne have never been clubbing or. or because you've, <laughs> yeah, been, sure. you've been printing stems at three in the morning. Yeah. yeah. 
So it does produce a different breed. And, and funnily enough, there is a little bit of snobbery in the production world. And if you're someone like me and you got into production via, via a band, you're seen as slightly less respectable than, a, than a, someone who's you know, gone through the ranks. Mm. Is that still the case even after? I, I, I think so. I think so. There's, there's definitely snobbery there. I think the heavy, um, the, the heavy focus on equipment and technicality. If you're an engineer, mm. uh, and the engineers kind of think, oh, you're a, you're from a band, you don't know how to EQ properly, or, or you know, you, you don't know this mic from that. And to be honest, that there are people that don't know these things and are still good producers. Um, you know, it, it's you don't have to know everything about equipment to be a good producer. Yeah, I, I sort of always phrased it in my head of an engineer how should know how to make something sound right and a producer has to know how to make it sound good yeah so, that's that's a that's definitely a good uh, little adage yeah i mean i th- i think that producers should be more people people mm. you know that they sh- they should be reading the the room and understanding what people want uh, whereas the engineer is is you know making sure it doesn't distort which is far less yeah. interesting yeah, well, that's really the crux of what we want to talk about in this podcast, the people person aspect of it. So in, in Sneaker Pimps, you work with um, some great producers like like Flood and, and Jim Abyss. But I assume you were also kind of co-producing with them? Yes, or? yes. Um, we kind of produced the record ourselves, Becoming X, the first Sneaker Pimps record. Uh, we produced it up to the level that we, we could in a bedroom. I was I was about to say, because the Sneaker Pimps model is quite a modern pop model, but you were making this when... You couldn't have Logic or Ableton on your laptop. So what was that? How was that process for the two of you? We were very much ahead of the curve. We had, because we were into sampling, we, we had a couple of samplers and an Atari ST computer, which had four tracks of audio. And, and we recorded the entire record on one gigabyte drive. <laughs> so you had to be very economical with your recording. But the yeah, back in the 1993, when we were started to make music, there weren't that many people who did stuff in their bedroom. It was kind of hard, so we were, we were right mm-hmm. at the front of that of that kind of wave of of bedroom producers. And we always knew that once we'd done it in the bedroom, that we had to expand it and and you know finish it off properly. So there was a couple of producers that I really wanted to work with. One was Flood, and one was a guy called Connie Plank, who's a famous German pro- uh, producer from from the seventies and eighties. Uh, so we sent we, we tried to get in touch with Flood and, and Connie Plank. It came back that Connie Plank was dead and had been for about five years. <laughs> so he was off. You were obviously off a diehard fan. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 Flood said yes. Flood did a couple of tracks, and then Jim Abyss. He was starting out at that point, so he'd just done some really good work with Bjork. So we thought, let's try him out. And he was very much the junior kind of, right? You know, he was a mix engineer, want you know, becoming a producer. And he's still one of my best friends. Uh, we, oh, we've cool. kept in touch ever since. And, and you, you know, the great thing was that I learned so much by being over the shoulder of these people. Sure. I mean, that's, that's kind of where I, I learned my trade. Spent a lot of time with these people and, and, yeah, kind of milked them for every bit of knowledge that I could. So throughout this first album process, were you kind of learning on the job the whole way? Um, totally self-taught when it comes to technology. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I was into music tech it, when i was 13 I, I got my first synthesizer i saved up for a roland sh101 amazing and mm. that was my first yeah. synth and i collected it 
you know, I spent every single penny that I ever had on on music gear. Yeah. And I went to art school, which again I think is a is a really good way to get into music. Yeah. Uh, and if yeah. I was if I was kind of um, giving advice, I'd say don't go to music school. Go to art school instead. It teaches yeah, you I would agree. It teaches yeah. you to be more creative. Mm. So I I collected synths. So I was pretty pretty good with um, MIDI, and I had a sequencer back then uh, on an old Yamaha CX something or other computer, and and that kind of taught me the basics. And then when uh, there was a program called Steinberg Pro Twenty Four, which is the the first ever multi-track digital sequencer, mm. and it ran on the Atari ST. It enabled you to have 24 tracks of MIDI. No audio, but 24 tracks of MIDI. Uh, so so we, we kind of started with that. And the, the main kind of, the, the main power houses, technically speaking, were our two samplers. We had two Akai S900s, which are 8-bit, kind of 12-second <laughs> maximum samplers. But you could multi-sample, so you could have many different samples at, at once. So really it was the, yeah, 24-track MIDI and two samplers. And that's how we did it. Amazing. Uh, and then we expanded and we got ourselves a Alasis ADAT, with, which was eight tracks of digital. So it was really simple. And we had a crappy little desk and, and it was, yeah, very, very homemade. I, I guess now's a good time to ask if you have any nostalgia for the limitations those that, that technology placed on you at that time. Because, um, you know, it's a completely different landscape today in terms of capabilities, number of tracks, amount of data, length of samples. It, it's infinite. You know, so... Do you do you like those? Did you miss those limitations ever? Do you have any self-imposed ones that you use at all? Um, I definitely miss them. Uh, the certainly our first record, Becoming X, the lean and spacious sound that it has is due to the fact that we only had um, twenty-four seconds of samples, so yeah. <laughs> and, and, four, and four audio tracks. So that's all we could do, and those you know twenty-four tracks and and the sample space needed to be really good. So uh, yeah, I I do lament the the limitations mm. that we had. However, I don't impose any limitations when I work now. Um, I'm mm. too spoiled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I do know I do know some kind of quite kind of ascetic producers who who try and you know um, kind of record on hard drive recorders and and don't go near doors. But I th- I think it's a little too overly theoretical to, to yes. do that. Yes, I know what you mean. I mean, I do. I do encourage people to to use less tracks, sure. and and I, I mean, I, I like the idea of keeping. If you if you start with one instrument on a on a song, I quite like the idea of keeping that instrument and not you know. For instance, if you've got one drum machine, I like the idea of uh, of continuing the track with that drum machine sound and not adding more drums. Yeah, I know yeah, what you yeah, mean. Yes. Me too. I like that idea. Yeah. So so. Uh, and again, I, I, I start with these principles, and by the end of it, there's loads of samples everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> when you made that change from like dance act to pop act, did you pivot your your style? Because now you're you're very much a writer producer. But with did you sit down and go right? We'll write these songs and then we'll produce them up, or were you kind of making, for want of a better word, beats and then going, what could we sing over this cool sample we've found? Or did you sit at a piano and go right? Let's write a song. Yeah, we we definitely drew a line under the dance music, and we and we said one of our phrases was you you need to be able to sing the song on a guitar on the toilet, um, right? <laughs> and if you can't strum along and sing it, then it's not a song. 
So you did have that in mind when you went? Oh, to always, always. We, we wrote on, on guitar and piano and then we produced. So it was always song first. Uh, however, the production would quite often change change the song. Yeah. But nevertheless, we were pretty strict about about uh, having songs that, that were playable without technology. Yeah, you always had that backbone of the chords and the melody that meant it, yeah. does it, you strip everything away, it's still a song, yeah. Yeah, okay, and, cool. and lyrics too. Lyrics are so important and, and you know, I... I do feel that that lyrics have been pushed to the back of the of the pile these days. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, not, I, not in every genre, but but you know, you listen to Radio One and you wonder if these people have gone to school. <laughs> <laughs> I have found it really interesting in the sessions that I've done, and and it's interesting how little people are interested in that. They're like, "Could you just make that synth sound amazing?" And that is the beat good enough? And mm. and you're like. Well, anyone can kind of create that, but as an artist, what you sing is what's going to make you unique. And it does feel that a lot of people are, are forgetting that when they go into yeah. what they would possibly now call production sessions. And you should be thinking maybe this is more a songwriting session and, and everything else will fall into line behind that. Yes. I, I mean, I've, I've tried every single songwriting gambit there is. So, you know, sometimes we go, okay, write it on a guitar uh, or, you know, go with production first or... I was doing yeah. one session with with uh, Chili Gonzalez. He had a really interesting method. He he said, "Okay, we're not going to do any chords and no drum beats. All we can do is clap. So we clap a tempo and we have to sing. We have to sing a melody." Wow, wow, that's. Amazing. And we wrote two songs like that. Um, that's amazing. And 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 then he puts the, the chords on afterwards. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And cool. and because what what that focuses your mind on is the the importance of lyric and melody. And how that, in the end, should be the, the, the focus of everything. Yeah. You know, I, I yeah, have, you know, I, in the past, I haven't followed that. Um, sure. Uh, exactly. But I think it's a good discipline. It's great. So, so after, the, after the success of, of Sneaker Pimps, and then you'd obviously had this aspiration to, to produce other acts, presumably, going, what was that transition like off the back of Sneaker Pimps and like coming into the producer engineer world and, and songwriting world and just... Yeah, do you know what? It wasn't, it wasn't easy. Um, mm. I'd started off, because, because we um, had a little production kind of company called Line of Flight, and that was basically just me and Chris. It was Sneaker Pimps without, without the songs. Right. And we, we did a lot of remixes. We started off remixing stuff, and that was the that was the kind of it started me thinking that, that I kind of enjoyed that just as much as being in a band. And in actual fact, being in a band was taking its toll on me. I always wanted to be behind the scenes, and being pushed on stage every night was was becoming difficult. Mm, uh, sure. And and we, we they they in America especially they they made us tour for eighteen months solid uh, with a couple of weeks off in Hawaii. Wow, uh, and and that was okay, yeah. Uh, you know that was that's that was very intense, and I just kind of pined for being in the studio, and that mm. really was what I started music, you know, for. I wanted to be a studio person, so so I took a step out of the band. Um, actually, when I had kids, I had a good excuse, and I said sure. I couldn't tour. Uh, so so that uh, put me in a position of of um, being able to uh, produce. So I eventually got a manager and started producing bands, but it took a long time, mainly because of, again, coming back to this 
snobbery in the music world, but because I wasn't a producer uh, who had gone through the ranks, yeah. mm. um, it was actually quite hard to get to get a gig. And also, I hadn't really formed my ex- exact the, the shape uh, of, of what I was going to do. Uh, you know, was I a songwriter? Was I a producer? Was I, was I a kind of song midwife? I don't know <laughs> what you know what I was, and, and so I had to work quite a lot. In, in the early days, 2004 up to 2009, probably, on just trying to find my feet and finding the kind of jobs that that suited my skills. Cool. Um, because I, you know, I am from a mainly a musical background and a band back background, and people kind of with a producer often want someone to trust to do all the engineering as well. So yeah, yeah it was. Yeah. It, it's it, it wasn't easy. Um, it's interesting here you say that, Lim, because I almost feel like the world has almost come to your skill set in a way because these things you're talking about now, I think probably me and Bob's experience with producers is most people we know who are, very few of them have come up through the ranks. Whereas maybe in that period you're talking about was the last maybe five or six years where to kind of be given the keys to the studio, you had to have been there 10 years. And now the kind of the home studio where you may be quite good at piano and quite good at programming and quite good at mixing but you're maybe not a savant at any of the three not the saying that you're not a savant, oh no no you're you know. absolutely but right. you know what i mean like that's you, become more useful than yeah yes no I, i'm i i fall into, into that exact uh, category which was i'm i play all instruments up to a standard yeah where where i can fix them in in, in my door yeah 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 sounds familiar yeah yeah and so i'd never be hired for a musical um ability so I I'm a jack of all trades. I I play everything. I I do everything um, to a to a level, and it's quite hard to sell a jack of all trades. Certainly back then, I think as you say now, um, there are that that model of being good at you know good enough at a, mm. a whole uh, spread of of skills. Yeah, is mm. is is quite the norm. Yes. Well, it's really interesting hearing you talk about this phase of your career because I, I don't want to speak for Lawrence, but I kind of feel like we're both in that phase right now where we've come out of bands and we're kind of trying to figure out where we fit in this songwriting production landscape. Yes. And um, so was there a kind of eureka moment for you or was it one project where things clicked and or, or was it just having a, another hit with someone and then people realizing, oh, they can do this? And Yeah, I, I mean, I, I had a kind of chip on my shoulder because I wasn't one of the uh, technical producers. So I spent a lot of time learning the engineering side of it, and I kind of uh, shadowed Jim Abyss and all. I, I went to as many uh, studio sessions as I could, and I learned all the old-fashioned stuff. Not to the, you know, absolute skills of, of the best engineer in the world, but I, I made sure that I caught up and had all those skills in, in my back pocket. But of course, back then you had to because because we all recorded in big studios. Mm, yeah. yeah. You yeah know, you now could, yeah. we, we yeah. don't. So. You didn't have an LA 2A emulator that you could buy for 60 quid and have on your door. You had to go and use one in someone's studio kind of thing. Exactly. And you had to be proficient and you had to, you had to be able to talk um, your way through a studio. So I made sure I was really good at that. Uh, and then, funnily enough, my biggest kind of break came when I started to write. Mm. And I was reluctant. I really didn't want to do writing because I wanted to be a producer. Yeah. So I was pissed yeah. off because because my manager was saying, "Oh, why don't you you know why don't you write? You're from a musical background. Why don't you write?" And 
I was reluctant, but I, I started doing it. Um, and through doing co-writes, I met people and produced for people. And by doing that, it's like a calling card for your production. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I started working with Marina of Marina the Diamonds and right at the very beginning of her career. And she was, she wanted to do some co-writes, but quite quickly I kind of said to her, your songs are good enough themselves. And I don't think that's production in itself, isn't it? You know, that's like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, which I say, I, you know, I say that quite often. I, I send people home sometimes saying, I don't know why you want to do a co, right? You're great. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but there again, even if you are great, you get a different context and a, sure. and a different perspective. Um, it, it's, it's all, you know, it takes all sorts. But with Marina, it was, it was in my home studio. And so it wasn't mm. really a, it became much more of a modern gig. It was a, you know, a small home studio. And we, we hardly stepped foot in big ones. And we, you know, we were making things just the two of us in a very intimate way. And, and which is the kind of way that records are made now. I was going to say, it's interesting that that's sort of how you did the Sneaker Pimps record, but maybe the world was still doing the big studio stuff, but then it kind of came back around that, and the world very much is now. Yeah. Home I'm, studio, write the song, produce it with, up yourself and get it out there. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a guy that might, um, on my management and he, a, a, a little dance producer, and he's 17 and he's produced these, these house tracks uh, and he's done it on earbuds and a laptop Amazing. Amazing. and he's never been to a club in his life and he's just got a, he's just got a half a million quid deal. No way. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And he's not worrying that he can't hear the low end in his earbuds. He's just like, does this I sound don't have, have any idea how he, how he gauges the, the low end. Yeah. I was listening to that Marina album today. It's, an amazing album, the first album, and it is amazing. One thing I noticed about it is she basically wrote the whole thing and it's such a personal record. But also you basically produced the whole thing as well, which for a pop project like that, even at that time, that's still quite a big thing to have done. But there is some ad producers or other producers on it. How did people come in and work with you or did you send things off and get stems back? How, what was that kind of process of producing that record like? Well, it, it was it was at a stage in the music world where where they were starting to have multiple producers for for albums. I mean, I was you know I I still like the idea of having one producer for the album. I, I think it, mm. it gives it coherence, etc. But back then they were starting to kind of kind of think that hey, let's you know let's get one producer for the single, one producer for this, that, the other, for, to to get different kind of flavors. But I, yeah, I retained most of the stuff, which which is cool, and I, I think I did the cooler tracks. But I was kind of, and this is another kind of bugbear of mine, but. I've been typecast as the person who does the interesting dark tracks on a, on a record and <laughs> doesn't do the singles, which, um, which is fair enough. Uh, and I can see why that is the case, but you know, it's slightly annoying. Yeah. That's and and yeah. also, I mean, I've, what happened was I started to play quite a role as what I would see as, as mentor, uh, because, mm. I was getting people through the door who'd never made records before and they were right at the beginning of their careers. So people like Marina and Twigs, and I, I was working with them before they'd ever recorded a vocal properly. So wow, yeah. I'm interested in getting, you know, right on the kind of ground, ground level and, and working up. So it takes a lot more time, but you, you kind of, you become a mentor and you become someone who helps them develop and, and you put the kind of love into the record and, and, and you know, you, you, you've um, stepped them through the various 
you know pitfalls of the music it's, it's industry. funny because you talked about the engineer who maybe had never been to a club yeah but i often think that with producers who've been artists previously it's also that thing of when the manager says x y and z sitting them down and going they don't mean it or that means this or the label means this and you can actually you can help not produce their career but you can help plug into that and be like i've been through this this is what this means this is where this might go and, and it's such a big part yeah, of the even job. with things like i've worked with bands where they're like can we do that because we don't have an extra guitarist on stage so i don't want to put three guitar tracks down and you go don't worry you'll have 17 guitar tracks on this if it makes it sound you know though even things that simple sometimes yeah 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 totally and you know i'm responsible for to an extent giving people a musical education as well mm. and you know there's no reason i mean for instance Marina, she'll kill me for this, but she'd never listened to David Bowie wow. at, at 23, a... which is which is quite quite amazing. She has now. Uh, um, yes, you you're developing artists often from from literally the, the ground floor. What's it yeah. like? What's it like when they do go on to have the kind of success that Marina, for example, has had? What's the, how does that feel? Um, I think it's. I mean, of, of course, you have a sense that that you know that, that you'd have liked to have kind of been more recognized but there's always something special about the first record there's always something special about the first things that people make and and if you're responsible for that then it kind of trumps the others yeah regardless yeah. regardless yeah. of record sales but there's something about that you know helping someone give birth to their to their first record is it's the first yeah. child absolutely so you know often i think i'm some kind of musical doula kind of <laughs> nice Nice. A musical what, sorry? Doula, Bob hasn't the, had um, children yet, so he's never heard that phrase. Ah, uh, it's, it's a birthing partner. Right. It's a hippie midwife. Okay, okay. Well, that, that's the second time we've done an interview and the, the midwife concept has come up. But like, it's, uh, it's, uh, well, it's, kind of, it's a quite, kind of good one. I, I do think you're, you're kind of helping someone give, artistically give birth. No, it's very apt. Even though if, if you've been through real childbirth, you know it's nothing like... <laughs> The first Twigs EP, which you produced, that is some of the most, even now, a few years on, some of the most kind of advanced. It was like really cutting edge, very sonically unique, cutting edge record that you kind of, with her, managed to smuggle into the mainstream. How did the discussions to to create that kind of music? It seems almost structural in composition rather than well, yeah. Like. Well, what's interesting about it is Twigs has a very precise vision of what she wants, even though she certainly at the time didn't have the technical um, know-how. She knew what she wanted to hear, so a lot of it was trying to interpret her vision and uh, kind of translate it into music almost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she had a visual aesthetic and a kind of a cultural aesthetic that she wanted to satisfy. So for her, it was like she knew where she wanted to get to, and so she envisioned a route, and it was my job to, to you know, help form that pathway for her to get where she wanted. It was very similar to Lana Del Rey when I was working with her. She, again, came in with a very clear vision of who she was going to be. She had little videos and, and aesthetics, and she knew what she was going to wear. She knew, knew what she was going to look like. And she needed music to fit that. Amazing. Rather than, I've got Amazing. music, you know, what am I going to wear? It was, yeah. Lana was more like, I know what I'm going to look like. You know, you make me the music that fits yeah, yeah, these, yeah. you know fits this, and I'm I'm not being I'm not demeaning that. What I mean is, is yeah. the visual and aesthetic cultural quality of of 
music and, and having a clear vision of that is so important now. I mean, the music is incredibly important as well, but sure. the, the music is informed by their cultural shape. And I think a lot of artists struggle now because they come with great music, but they have no cultural identity or, or, or ambition. And that, unfortunately or fortunately, is something that is essential um, for people to get clear identities of who you are right. early on in, in the career. So what what was the process with 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 Lana then? Was it was that were those writing sessions where she was coming in with with like a mood board or or visual stuff and and you would literally write a song there and then or how did that work? And well, well, she'd come in and she'd just talk us through it uh, and sh- uh, play us little videos that she'd made of, of like like video games. And she came in and one day and she played video games and and um, I loved it. I just said this is this is yes, awesome. Yeah. This is great. And she said, oh, well, the record company hate it. They said, we'll never get on Radio 1. And if I don't make songs like Rihanna, I'm not getting anywhere. Oh, God. The creative process with, with the, the Twigs um, stuff, like just, just sure. th- those, some of the sounds are so kind of off the wall. And so was she describing them to you in, in, as best as she could? And would you be like fiddling around on a synth? Or? I, had, I was working with a, a great guy called Tick who works for Young Turks XL. And it was me and him that were making the music. And... One of the main starting points was uh, Tick's got a guitar synthesizer, one of the old-fashioned um, MIDI guitar controllers. Yeah, yeah, cool. And it's got a little basic synth in it, but he was using that, and then we were sampling the the guitar synth, chopping it up, and working kind of without tempo for quite a lot of, of the time, and tr- just trying to get sound design moments to 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 work. Right. Yeah, it was it was trying as as much as we could to avoid the the obvious i guess you know something sure. as simple as that and yeah she, she'd be very quick to say i like this bit don't like that bit you know uh, even if the vocabulary wasn't there it was you know it, the the vision was mm. and did, did those inform the the songwriting or, or or would she come in with like some sketch of a song or she was very um particular about top line uh and she always comes up with everything so she comes up with all the words and all the, all the melody cool um, and she responds to the to the music. Yeah, yeah. But, but her her skill is her vocal skill and um, lyrical kind of abilities are, are, are amazing. Yeah. I think, you know, obviously that's, that's coming back to what we said at the very beginning. You know, that melody and lyric. You know, get mm. that right. I do writing sessions where people come in, and quite often they say, "I've I've written." 120 songs for this record <laughs> yeah wow and i know it well it's it's nonsense because I'm, I'm a true believer in the fact that we have finite ideas really and yeah i i, I think not in a hocus pocus sense but sure yeah what i mean is in any given time period you you have mm-hmm. a, a, you only have so many kind of ideas that, that you can uh that, that, that you can experiment with yeah so if you write 100 songs you have diluted you've spread your hundred ideas across a hundred songs whereas if you do 40 um which is still a lot i think uh but if you do that then you'll be able to articulate your idea more more fully and and with more form in in the small amount of songs i've never thought about it like that that's fascinating because you know i i i get it with with artists you know halfway through the session they'll go oh ish, i've sung that before yeah yeah and it's like well no oh, surprise yeah. because you know you, how how do you come up with a hundred melodies in yeah. six months? But it's the way of the music industry because because songwriting is a free resource. So quite a lot of the yeah. time, 
and the worst sessions are where you can you know that the record company is simply keeping the artist busy right and you think wow yeah. this is this is just like um youth club or something it's like yeah, <laughs> yeah. recording just, yeah. someone for free right the recording the, com- the company's just like fob them off to to make them feel like something's happening when actually they're yeah, on, yeah. on they, the they, shelf they they yeah. basically they, they if an artist's in development and they're having a hard time with them they they keep them busy with with, with a you know, through the week, they fill a calendar up with co-writes. Right. We, yeah, we spoke to a couple of producers who were saying they're working with artists who've not even put a single out and they're sick of studios. Yeah, well, well that, that's true, which is usually, the, yeah, back in the that's old like days. It's like the opposite, yeah. It was the opposite, like, which is peculiar. But yeah, definitely the, I mean, artists will be sick and tired of bedroom studios, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I lament the days when... A, a mix had to go down on the night, at you know, on on the mm. mixing desk. And if the A and R wanted to be there, they could. And once you'd recorded it and pressed stop, that was it. Yeah. No more recalls. Yeah, another thing from the past that maybe should be reinstated. <laughs> yeah. And uh, another thing that I've learnt in in my wisdom is is that these details kind of don't matter as much as you think they do. No. Yeah, I, I've I've kind of sometimes I've gone back by mistake and listened to a, a mix that I've done and thought, that's great. And then realized it was mixed, you know, five mixes off the final one. Yeah. Sure. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's the feel of the song. It's the feel and, and the yeah. emotional effect that it has. It's a whole kind of cultural and emotional thing. Yeah. Music and, and the technicality, it's incredible. I mean, it's incredible what people don't care about. Yeah. I really wish I had a good way of communicating to artists when they're going back and forth on like one dB volume rides on this line and and stuff like that. It's like doesn't matter. Just like, say it's bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've 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 got one. Uh, there's one good story I have, which um, about mixing. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. I was friends with Nelly Hooper, the '90s kind of producer. And he was producing, um, he told me the story about when he was producing Sinead O'Connor's, uh, uh, her famous song. Uh, Nothing Compares to You. Nothing Compares to You, yeah. exactly. Wow. And uh, he was a, he's a kind of producer that sits, at, you know, sits on the, at the back on a sofa and, you know, shouts the occasional kind of thing across. But he's more of a vibes man. He, he, he kind of gets yeah. on with the band and, cool. and has an engineer. So he'd gone off. Uh, it was late at night and he'd gone off to a nightclub, uh, Browns, which was very fashionable at the time. And he came back a bit kind of fuzzed up. Skew whiff. <laughs> Skew whiff. And uh, the engineer, he said, oh, stop, it's sounding great. And the engineer said, what, right right now? He said, yeah, just that's it. Print it as it is. I've got a real good vibe about this one. Just print it. And the engineer said, are you absolutely sure? <laughs> and so so he went, uh, the, the Nelly went off and the um, engineer uh, printed the the track, it went to you know it went to manufacture and everything, uh, and it was released. Nelly Hooper then heard it on radio, and said, "What? Where the the bass?" <laughs> and he'd he'd um, muted the bass. The engineer had muted oh. the bass, but he'd uh, and when Nelly Hooper said that mix is perfect how it is, he just thought, well, he doesn't like the bass anymore. Amazing. So if you listen to that song, there's no bass on it, but there should have been. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah, and that sounds. A hundred million record sales later, no one's wondering where the bass. Yeah, but 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 the 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 take home, you know, the the moral of the story is it doesn't matter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
No. As long as you don't mute the vocal. Yeah, that would have been that would have been noticed, I think. <laughs> Shakespeare once said that music is the food of love. But what is the food of music? As much as the right microphone or guitar amp, what we eat or drink can be such a crucial part of a recording session. So each week we like to ask our guests, what do they cook or order to get the mood right in the studio? Okay, well, well, this day and age, um, I would go, I'd go vegan. Cool. Nice. And I have a favourite chef food writer called Anna Jones and she's an incredible cook and I more or less make everything that she suggests Uh, but uh, amazing amazing Uh, I just uh, made one the weekend which was some kind of halloumi uh, reduced onions tart with with Mm. hazelnuts and all sorts very very good anyway I recommend that cool Favorite reverb, Valhalla. Nice, <laughs> good, yeah. good choice. Uh, do you know which which one? Uh, I'd like to hear which one. Yeah, that yeah. would be good. Uh, Valhalla Uber Mod. Ah, okay, Ooh, that's new. Good. Could we get a lot of Valhalla? But we haven't had the Uber yes. Mod singled out yet. So why, it's, why it's, is that? That's the that's the the reverbs on Uber Mod are dark and long and and mysterious. Uh, especially, I think it's called Tape Verb, or uh, there's a couple, but. Check out because you don't think of it as a, as a reverb, but definitely check out the reverbs on Ubermod. Also, the reverbs on Sound Toys Echo Boy. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so like, in, if you go down into the little style menu and go to the to the yeah right. So the, the, yeah, it's it's loaded up with a, a bunch of really good reverbs. Well, the next question was going to be, what's your favourite delay? So, ah, uh, um, Sound Toys Primal Tap. Ah, okay, the Primal Tap. Why is that? It's because it's got really intense modulation. I love a bendy um, delay, something that kind of gives it a woozy quality. And I think if you if you put a delay on, it thickens the voice up. It's you know if something's sounding a little bit thin, a, a modulated um, delay is really good. Cool. Uh, favorite compressor? Um, it is my my hardware, eleven seventy six Silverface. I got that in about two thousand and eight when they were affordable. <laughs> yeah. What's your favourite synth? It would have to be the Mini Moog because I bought it when I was about 15. I bought it for 50 quid. No way. Um, <laughs> and it was in the... up. I bought it from up north where I'm from in Hartlepool. Right. And it was in one of the classifieds in a newspaper. Oh, wow. And the guy had had just bought a DX7 polysynth. <laughs> and he said to us, why would anyone want one of these? It only plays one note. Oh, my God. So we got it for 50 quid. And a flight case. Well done, you. Wow. That's incredible. So, and that was in 19, that was in 1984. Sweet. So I've had it for, for all that time. And it's, it's very sentimental. Uh, not bad. It's also the same age as me. He was born in 1971. <laughs> nice. um, and last but not least, favourite microphone. Interesting. I mean, this one I love. It's Neumann with an M7 capsule. Five, six, yeah, see, it's a Neumann uh, CMV563. Uh, it's my favourite kind of heritage mic, right? Um, but it's a bit noisy and it's very coloured. What kind so, of flavour okay. does it give you? If you can describe it, in... it gives you dusty kind of crushed mid mid range. Oh, cool! But my the the workhorse mic I have is a is an early eighties Neumann U eighty seven, right? And that's the one that I tend to go to. Great, really interesting answers on those. Um, yeah. We've got one more question that we ask everyone, which is, 
What is the most important tool at your disposal as a producer? I don't know. Compassion, I would say. Nice. Kindness. Because I, I don't think... I, I'm a big believer in... I'm not one of these producers who kind of, you know, boot camp producers. Who, yeah. Who uh, kind of breaks people down. <laughs> yeah. Although I'm sure Lawrence would... Uh, I mean, it's, I'm still still recovering. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I do, I do believe that, that you're, help, you know, you're helping someone forge their career and... You'd, you know, I, I want to be remembered as someone who is kind and uh, compassionate and influential on, on their, you know, on their development and, and, and their, you know, birth into the music industry. So I think, you know, a lot of it is like a kind of being a mentor, being someone who, who they trust. Mm. And I think that's as important as what, you know, everything else you do. So, Bob. I learned a lot from that interview, but I have already spent six weeks in a recording studio with Liam. How was that for you? I'd be really interested what you took from from hearing Liam's words of wisdom there. Well, first of all, I think he must have been a great guy to do your debut album with. Um, yeah. He does seem, like you said in the intro, he does seem like a bit, a bit of a Big Brother character. Yeah, just just really sympathetic to the needs of artists. I think mm. I think that was that was really nice and. Um, I think my favorite thing about his answers were just uh, that he was he was very forthright about everything. He he kind of knew where he stood, and he wasn't afraid to give a give his opinion, even if it's maybe mm. not not the kind of mainstream opinion in a couple yes. of places. I thought that was really cool, and that was something that was really interesting as having him as a producer, um, and and something that's important to learn. I think when you're in a band, you learn a lot to compromise, which is a huge part of being in a band. Yeah, tr- that's yeah. True. But you also do need to commit to things. And as a producer, he was very good at making us commit to things. Mm. But I think one of my other takeaways to come away from that was to hear someone who has done that work still talk about, maybe insecurities is the wrong word, but still talk about um, sometimes maybe feeling that he lacked a certain skill because that he'd come up through this artist pathway that maybe certain producers didn't respect his background or we've talked about it before yeah everyone can feel this imposter syndrome yeah everyone that, in every every walk of life I think. every walk of life yeah. and really interesting to hear that and, yeah and he possibly was feeling that when he got into a room with us for the first time he was like right i've now got to produce this band's debut album and i just had complete faith in him yeah i think i think it never that feeling never goes away so maybe the lesson is to just embrace it when you do feel it the Mm. the imposter syndrome and realize we're all going through it forever uh you know at every stage of our career we're going to get it so you just have to kind of push push through and realize that like hey no one ever knows what they're doing yeah yeah what did you take away from it bob i loved um when we were talking about and it's a bit of an old cliche now. You, you you hear people talk like, "Oh, does it work on an acoustic guitar?" Talk about mm. songwriting, mm-hmm. and you you get too wrapped up in the production and you forget about the actual song. And you know, mm-hmm. he was very big on the importance of the song working as a song. So strip away all the all the all the bells and whistles. And I just wanted to pick up on a couple of things on that topic. Firstly, the importance of lyrics. I think that's something that really is is forgotten. Um, so in some sessions now, like what, what's been your experience of that? Yeah, I find that it's become a real zero sum game. You either get in a room with an artist and they can nail it and they know who they are and their lyrics are amazing. And you almost just get out of the way and, and almost go, you've got it. Yeah. And then I find with other artists that 
they don't quite know who they want to be lyrically, mm. but they also don't want to sit down and talk about it. No. It's a hard uh, one. Sometimes. And it's a hard one. And it's almost like by talking about it, you're sort of cheating. Mm. And I, I'm not sure about that because I think you would talk about your guitar sound yeah. or you would be a guitarist that knew your guitar sound. Yeah. And you would go, no, look, this is the amplifier I use and this is my pedals. Mm. But if a producer said, have you thought about this reverb or this delay, you'd probably want to listen to them. Yeah. And in this world where producers have to wear one or more hats, I think it's important for the producer to... If they feel they can do it, talk to artists about it and for artists to want to engage on that level. Yeah, I'm feeling more comfortable in myself having input in the lyrical side of things, whereas I didn't until recently. Um, but I do find that some artists are more resistant to it, um, mm. mainly because they just want to write their own lyrics and, and lyrics are such a personal thing. But I do think it's okay to to talk about them and have a little mm. it's not going to ruin the magic if you go this is where i was coming from um, i think resistance is great if it's because they know what they want to write about and and actually yeah. as a writer who as a producer who feels more like a writer sometimes that's great i just go brilliant we've had the conversation and it's not something yeah. we need to think about but i do sometimes i am in sessions and and the artist is really drilling into the eq of of the synth bass yeah and I just think you've not written the top line yet. Yeah. Well, and that... I want to. I almost want to stop the computer and turn around and go, "What's our song?" Yeah. It, what are we doing this for? It's yeah. I, I mean, I, I think this is this is a huge topic because yeah, I often feel like that as well. But like, kind of my role in the studio is getting a cool synth bass sound sometimes, and I don't want to turn around and be like. Hey, you who are the more conventional songwriter, you haven't actually done your job yet. So sure. yeah, and I, yeah. I, I feel like sometimes I can't do that. But realistically, you can you can get the coolest sounds in the world, but like if if you don't have that basis of a song, it, it, it might be a waste of time. And and maybe a lot of producers maybe feel that their job is top like melodies and chords and mm. sounds rather than lyrical content. Mm. But song concepts and great lyrics are so important. And if the artist in the room isn't quite there yet, I, you know, I really feel that producers' jobs is to help them get there. And yeah. it might not be to pick up the pen and write. It's just it might just be them. to go, where are you from? What's your story? Who are you? Yeah, encourage them. This is a great idea. Because I've always thought of myself as a melody person over a lyric person, like in terms of music as a listener. But mm -hmm. really, the more I work on music, I realize that a good melody isn't a good melody without a good lyric. I, I completely I really think they go hand in hand. I regularly get back from sessions with a project I'm really pleased with and it'll have a scratch vocal on it. And I think we'll have the riff. We've nailed the melody. There's some really cool sounds and I'll play it to my wife and she'll be like, oh, it sounds good. Um, I can't hear what they're saying though. So I don't really know if I like it. Yeah. And in my head, I'm like, what do you mean what they're saying? We've got the melodies and yeah. we found this really cool drum loop. And But to her, she's like, well, it's not a song until they're saying something. Yeah. So I don't know if I like it yet. I think and the it's... vast majority of music oh, listeners of really latch onto lyrics first. Mm -hmm. And and you, you need the melody to deliver that lyric. But I think we as producers who get get into more of the less obvious things that the, maybe the, the, the listeners kind of just ignore... But uh, on a conscious level anyway, we can sort of forget how important these lyrics are. Yes. Um, and that actually, that's another takeaway Liam says, which is like so much of it is bull crap. Like well, you're going down this rabbit hole on mix 47 
And then you listen to Mix 42 and go, well, the song was there at this point. We could have signed it off. That story about Nelly Hooper and the, and the bass on um, Sinead O'Connor Nothing is compares to you is amazing. Because, yeah, that song is the vocal performance yeah. and the song. Yeah. Well, just, just to kind of play devil's advocate on this whole song, lyrics, melody thing. Love a bit of devil's advocacy well, come at me. Like, there are great pieces of music and, and pop tunes where if you did go and play them on the guitar, it would be rubbish and, and sound like nothing. Like I'm thinking of especially like some more modern genres, some more dance music stuff, some some more like yes, hip hop definitely, stuff. Definitely. You, you don't it doesn't it's not like a hard and fast rule that a song to be a hit or to be good has to sound good Completely. on an acoustic instrument a cappella. Yes, and the, the twig stuff that Liam worked on did not start that way and did not go that uh, yeah, direction. I, I wonder if there's many like YouTube YouTube covers of like, acoustic. No, it's a difficult one. But those great hip hop songs and those great dance songs, if they're not just purely instrumental in dance music, yep. they probably do have a great lyric in them. Yeah. yeah. I never sleep because sleep is the cousin of death. That's like the Nas one that always mm. stays with me. I mm. mean, that's an incredible lyric. Yeah. It's also that whole record sounds amazing, but it's the words that stay with you. Yeah. Um, and dance records are often built around one great line. But no, it's a really good point. But so much can be gained by turning off your computer when you're stuck on a song. Yeah. Turning around with a piano or a guitar and the lyric and just yeah. just going back to what you're trying to create. Yes. And then it can sometimes help your path forward. Yeah. And anyway, to, to, to go back to what, to what you brought up about the, the minute details not mattering mm. so much. I mean, yeah, the big picture stuff, it, it, it is so much more important. And then... Like Liam just going like just just tell them it's bollocks, you know. But like yes. it is it is really hard when you're in the studio with an artist and they're really getting hung up on a little thing mm -hmm. um, to try and convince them that this isn't going to matter. Yes, I, I I I wish I had that superpower. Um, no one has that superpower. Yeah. And I've I remember going for walks with the mixes of the album we made with Liam and insisting on one db rides on the bass yeah and then half db rides down and i it's impossible to learn without having done it i'm sure mm. there are some people that do it but generally speaking you're so involved it's so hard to let go yeah. so if there are artists out there listening just think sweat the important things sweat the the double chorus or the lyric you think is really artistically important and don't sweat the um 2 db ride on the ride symbol yeah Especially when you're not at the mix stage yet. Yes. <laughs> That's yeah. I get a bit. <laughs> yeah. Can you wait till we've mixed it, please? Yeah. One thing I found fascinating about Liam talking about his early workflow is how how little space they had to make things. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. if you listen to those Sneaker Pimps records, they sound a little of the time they released stylistically, but they don't sound dated. <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's not like putting on an early house record and you're like, oh, okay, the dum drums are quite thin because it, it's been sampled and downsampled mm. eight times. Like, you put that on now, if you release that as a record today, it would fly. It's an incredible record. And they could only have 12 seconds of sampling. They only had four tracks of live audio. They Yeah, I've been looking up some of that gear they yeah. use, the, the Alessis and the Atari. We'll, we'll put some pictures of it on the Instagram because it is, it is really, like, retro now and, and looks kind of cool, but kind of unimaginable to people who produce these days on, on digital audio workstations. But those restrictions help them create amazing music. I think so. 
I think so. I think I think it's a bit of less is more. And and the other mm-hmm. phrase that I, that came to mind is the tyranny of choice. Yes, and, and that's something that I feel affects us all. It's a bit like having the choice to to change the mix a million times uh, in a, in an infinite different number of ways. The volume of all these choices that you're presented with today can sort of paralyze you and and mean that you miss the big picture. Yes. Yeah. Perhaps those limitations they used in the the 90s were part of their process. I mean, he did say, though, that he doesn't use those limitations these days. So, and as much as he might like to, he just can't. But I do wonder if, and actually, the more, when I work, when I sit down to demo a song, rather than produce it. Yeah. Those limitations are great. I often just have one drum kit that I'll pull up yeah. and a couple of guitar patches because I just need to get that idea down. Yeah. yeah and yeah. if you can then build from those limitations that you've imposed on yourself, mm. you're probably starting in a good place. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think everyone has to find their own way to impose limitations and not get lost in the myriad of, of options that we have. But yeah, if you can do that, I think it's a positive thing for your creativity. Talking about this tyranny of choice and this these infinite options... It feels like maybe a good point to transition to who we're talking to next week because we're interviewing Rob Ellis, who is a Mercury-winning producer for the album uh, Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea, PJ Harvey. And his approach to production is almost like the tyranny of choice destroyer. Yeah. Um, Talks about working with bands and finding the songs and finding the roots. Yeah. And... We did the interview with Liam and the interview with Rob within the same week, and um, both of them just completely nourished my soul. Yeah. So I sort of want to say um, a big thank you to Liam for all those lessons and mm. a big thank you to all of you for listening this week and kind of getting hyped for the next episode in two weeks' time where we're going to talk to another kind of legend of production and hear a totally new story. Yeah, someone who's who's not necessarily embraced all the new technology that's available these days and kept a slightly more traditional workflow. And yeah, that's really and embraced the spirit about. and the vibe that Liam alludes to yeah. that he found with those Sneaker Pimps recordings. Yeah, very much so. So yeah, thanks everyone uh, for listening this week thanks and again. we'll speak to you again in a fortnight. Yeah, we'll be back in two weeks. Have a good one, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Process of Production this week. If you enjoyed it, please give us a follow and maybe even a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. It really helps. And please get in touch if you have any thoughts on the show, questions you'd like answered, or producers you'd like to see featured. We'd love to hear from you. Our Instagram is at processofproduction and our email is processofproductionpodcast at gmail.com. Next time, we speak to Rob Ellis whose work with PJ Harvey led to an esoteric production career with artists like Bat for Lashes, Anna Calvi, Torres, and Marianne Faithful. See you next time.